the maximum. Overdrive. Maximum overdrive. Welcome to Maximum Overdrive. I'm Sarah Griffith, uh, apparently. Not as good as she is, though. No, no say. one's as good as she is. That's my she, favorite theme on our network, and she does it live every time. He, uh, I think I've said this before once, but... Um, I edit those, right? So if you have any um, editorial notes, uh, aim them at me, not Bridget or Sarah. But uh, she does that every time. There's no timer or anything. There's no, you know, like she just has it in her head. And mm-hmm. I granted it's not that long, but I never, not once have needed to sync up the uh, the sweeteners that I add, like the the the, the simple hits symbols and stuff and stuff yeah. like that it's always in perfect time from That's the amazing. first one musical so she theater repe- she repeats it perfectly like uh every time it's amazing i am humbled <laughs> that's right that's cast and curious aka and curious. cac or aka cac and Ak-Kak. this of course is uh kings of king aka cock so this it's cock. not it's yeah. not cac it's cock mm-hmm. and uh i'm actually Rips off rubber suit. Michael Swaim. Got you. Oh, I wasn't Sarah Griffith the whole time. Who are you, buddy? I'm Abe Epperson. I'm the other guy who talks about Stephen King. That's what we do here. We mm. go through and deeply analyze and unpack the adapted works of Stephen King in the realm of film and television. Um, have we done television yet? We definitely will. I don't think we have yeah. yet. Yeah. We've made, but, made for TV movie. We did. Oh, sure. It. it. We did Stephen King's It. But mm-hmm. this one's the evil car one. And not that evil car one, the other evil car one. We should say up right. top, I think we should keep doing this. I don't mean fucking it up, but I, I aim to make it stick one day. We try to tell people what we're thinking of watching next <laughs> episode in case they want to follow along. We did it again. We fudged up again. Abe, you want to explain why we're not talking about Salem's Lot, which we promised we would? We couldn't find it. That's all. Uh, yeah, we couldn't find it. <laughs> That's right. I just decided, I'm sure someone can find it, but I just, I'm, we were like, it was late and we were like, hey, let's make a choice. And I was like, maximum overdraft. <laughs> Although several people have written very kindly to say that the 80s version's better than the more recent one. So right. maybe we should have just reverted to that. So maybe chime in. If we were to do Salem's Lot, if we were to find a version of the 2004 Rob Lowe version, would you prefer that we do the 80s version over that one? Um, Andre Brower's in that too, right? Andre Brower's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, from the mist to Salem's Lot. Mm. Twice in the Kingiverse that we know of. So we decided to hop from Christine, an evil car, to Maximum Overdrive, which is nominally a film about all machines all over the world turning evil. But as you'll find out, it mostly focuses on cars and uh, not all machines turn evil. It's very, the rules are very haphazard. Um, But some other things turn evil a jukebox, an ATM machine. I don't know if it's evil to call someone an asshole. All right, I'm getting too far into it. Um, should we uh, should we start this this thing? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's start our deep deep dive, the deepest of um, dives. And to get there, yeah. we'll have to go through a dome. Our best guess puts the dome at twenty thousand feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Under the dome. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Under the Dome. And Under the Dome is where we give a brief synopsis of the movie, uh, and in some cases a little bit of the backstory or the surrounding uh, events of the time and of the day and place and, you know, the reporter's questions, who, what, when, where, why, about the thing in question. In this case, 1986's Maximum Overdrive. Should I take it or you want to take it, Abe? You know, this one's pretty easy. I got to be honest with you. Like it's like I want to kind of unpack. I think this movie doesn't have a lot to talk about because it's not very good. <laughs> but well, if you want to inspect exa- like we can really look into what makes this movie fail, uh, which might be fun. But in order to do so, we kind of just have to talk about what the movie is. There's a comet. And for eight days, it's messing up the globe's electronics 
Turns out they're haunted. So electronics, cars, appliance, vending machines, as you said, are all literally trying turning against humans and trying to kill them. Uh, and this movie follows a group of people staying in a truck shop or truck stop. Sorry. Kind of like the mist. It's Dixie just boy. Surrounds a group of people who are held up against because uh, they're surrounded by trucks and cars. Their theory is that it, they'll be gone in eight days because it's the comet arrived and then this all started happening. Uh, electronics and cars threaten their lives on a daily basis. Eventually the cars make a deal with the humans through Morse code to fuel them up in return for not killing them. So they kind of like try are trying to enslave humanity. The group of humans uh, do that for a while, but once they like run out of gas and they're just tired of it, they uh, they escape underground uh, they, by using a convenient grenade on the car that is also a gun. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, get into all this. We'll get into all this. Uh, and then the truck stop blows up. They run from the first truck that actually arrived on scene, the Green Goblin truck, decides to go after and find them for some weird reason. And uh, they try to escape to a marina. Uh, that's where they head. Uh, and that truck follows them there. They board a motorboat <laughs> and go to sea after blowing it up with a bazooka. <laughs> And then it says, as they leave, text over the sunset says, two days later, Russia takes down a UFO and the comet passes and everything returns to normal. Closing That's the movie. text card, fucking Animal House style to wrap up yeah. your stunt driven action explosion horror ACDC scored movie. What the fuck is going on? This, so how do they board a motorboat? And that's the wind. Like, don't they board? They board a sailboat. That's the whole point. They're going to Haven where motors aren't allowed. But here's what I don't get. A bicycle turns evil earlier. So you clearly don't need right. an engine. That you, counts as a machine, a bicycle in one of the scenes, the bicycle turns understand. evil. So why wouldn't a sailboat be able to like whip the boom arm around and conk people out also is this based on a stephen king book yeah it's based off a short story a short story i mm -hmm. gotta read this short story because like i have in all caps in my notes this man wrote the shining <laughs> um yeah. so what is going on with him like i want to know how loosely the movie follows the book because we'll get into it in the next segment We'll get into in the next segment. Can I start the next segment and transition yeah, us yeah, now? Yeah. Okay. By way of getting out of the dome, I just want to say that an easier way to say all this, as I'm going to I'm gonna try and play this game as long as I can. Yeah. Welcome to Which Futurama Is It with Michael Swain. <laughs> this is the Futurama where mom sends out the signal that makes all the robots rise up against humanity. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's as if, if mom were aliens instead. Yeah. That's all. And the signal was a comment. Mm -hmm. Um. It's less well done, but that's that. So let's move on to our next segment where we discuss uh, the people behind the movie. I think this is going to be a really meaty segment this time, which is ironic because it's time for Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! So obviously uh, the elephant in the room is yeah. this is not just written but directed by Stephen King. If you've seen, there's a trailer for Maximum Overdrive that is just Stephen King sitting in a chair looking direct to camera saying, I'm Stephen King, you know my name, I decided to direct a movie because if you want, because I've been un dissatisfied with how people are adapting my work, uh, so if you want to do it right, you do it yourself. Now this so is an 86 movie. What's already come out? Like, is Misery come out? Uh, so what's come out at this point is Cat's Eye. I am going back with Children of the Corn, Firestarter, Christine, The Dead Zone, Cujo, Creepshow, and Sh The Shining. Um, and Carrie, the Shining, obviously, being the, the Shining's first. already come out. So I don't know yeah. what the fuck he's talking about. But it's well, he uh, hated The Shining. He so. hated The Shining, and and the other ones you named are not necessarily as heaviest of hitters. So it's an interesting yeah. time in King's evolution. But I, just to finish the thought, mm. if you have read the short story, please write in and tell us how faithful the screenplay is, because I can right. understand there's plenty of novelists 
who try to leap to screenplay and find out it's a different world with different rules mm. and uh, and fumble. But I'm but it's so insanely plotted that I'm like, is this what happened in the short story? Because the plot threads don't connect and shit. And there is a companion quote to the quote Abe just read that we must bring up because right. years because it sort of flies in the face of that. Years later, Stephen King is quoted as saying. I was coked out of my mind the entire time I was making the picture and didn't know what I was doing. It's brought to you um, by cocaine. <laughs> yes, which also brought us Misery, a great film. Um, although he wrote that after mm-hmm. Finding Sobriety. Uh, this is the same year as Stand yeah. By Me, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So, now so I can like, shit on this because that, yeah, because it's the same year. Yeah, it's not and a dated if people thing. are looking to read the actual short story, it's Night Shift is the collection. Uh, the name of the short story is Trucks. And if people are looking to find out if they should watch the movie, which we sometimes say when it's relevant, I would say no. I I'm, I say it's relevant to mention that because if you haven't seen this and you listen to the podcast, which I think will make for a great discussion, our Dreamcatcher episode was great, but um, you don't have to waste your time watching this. Like you have more important shit to do. I it's don't even great- think it was bad in an interesting way unless you're very into film. <clears throat> it's a great movie for like bad movie night uh, because it's I guess, inexplicable. I think it's an okay bad it's, movie. It's kind yeah. of boring to be honest. Uh, but things are just happening, and it's silly. And if you find it's funny to see cars drive themselves around and stuff, mm-hmm. it's going to be a riot because that's all it really is. Uh, and Emilio Estevez is in it, and uh, it's true. Who else? So let's wrap up Skeleton Crew. Yardley Smith, aka Lisa Simpson. Lisa Simpson, yeah. Uh, um, Gus Fring, aka Gus- Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, he's in it. He gets killed by an arcade. He uh, has one or two lines, and mm-hmm. then he gets shocked to death comically. I'm talking Home Alone comically. Yeah. Um, by a haunted arcade machine that also seems to hypnotoad him. I'm not sure how. Uh, Frankie Faison, who I best know as, I mean, he's a recurring actor in lots of stuff, but I know his brother Donald Faison from Scrubs, of course, Dr. Turk. And uh, Marla Maples is in it. And that's those are like the notable cast members, as far as I'm concerned. But the big takeaway from Skeleton Crew, Leon written Rip, and directed. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, that's true. Frankie Faison is in mm. it as Handy, which is hilarious yeah. to me. Some people might recognize him as the uh, commissioner from The Wire. Um, yeah. And that's what's what crazy is that you can tell that they should. He's supposed to be there the whole time, but he's only in two scenes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was. It probably was like a scheduling conflict, but he just appears. And in all the shots of like the group for about an hour, the majority of the movie, he's not there. His character isn't there. And it's like, what that physically, but the story does says that he is so you're like what he's just weirdly off camera forever he's just weirdly off camera when they're having all their group scenes and talking about what's happening and stuff he's just not in the movie and then he's there at the end of the movie like it's almost like we dreamed that he happened he's also the guy who brought the green goblin truck which is the first truck the head truck i guess but The reason I mentioned that in skeleton crew is only it's going to reveal the kind of thinking obviously cocaine, but the kind of thinking that motivated like the, probably the day-to-day activity of this set, uh, which is not really any m- at all. <laughs> it's just right. And I, did or like hood. Speaking of directorial fumbling around, it's like uh, a similar thing I noticed was because they're in a diner, the power's out. So they shouldn't have the ability to cook food, but because they're in a diner, there's scenes where suddenly we cut in media res to a group scene and they're looking out the window and every actor has a fully prepared meal in their hands. And it's just like Stephen King as director gave them a meal cause they're in a diner, but it doesn't make sense cause their lives are in danger. Why would they be eating? Mm-hmm. And why would the, and I thought power was out. How are they making these meals? Um, so there's just all this be a lack grill, of attention, whatever the exact lack of attention to detail. Yeah. I mean, yes, but we see the waitress struggling. My point, I just really find it highly unlikely that they would be eating diner quality food the next day while they're watching Mm. the car. Anyway, um, 
regardless, I guess what I'm getting at is just that it has exactly the lack of attention to detail that you'd think someone on cocaine directing mm-hmm. would, where they are muddling through from big point to big point and they have no peripheral vision and are not interested in like the details of what's going on. We just got to go fast and big and make it right. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, couple more things for me for Skeleton Crew. Uh, when asked why he hasn't directed a movie since this one, Stephen King responded, just watch Maximum Overdrive. So I yeah, think he's he called made it a piece. moron movie or something moron like that. Movie, yeah. Uh, the DP of this movie sued Stephen King and the production because, like the movie, uh, a um, lawnmower went awry and like hit a block of wood, which sent uh, splinters right into the DP's eye, causing him to lose his eye. Uh, which is actually like that's kind of a career ender. Uh, yeah. That's pretty fucked up. I now, know. It's like a pianist losing their hand because right. they were recording a jingle for cat food commercials. Like, it almost seems worse than it was so, for this movie. Obviously, they're playing it fast and loose because these things don't normally happen. Acts of God do happen. I don't really know. He, they settled out of court, so who knows where it went. But in terms of the safety, they were probably much like the rest of the film, not obeying all of the things that you need to be doing when you're, you know, big trucks exploding and flipping over and stuff like that. Look, apocalypse now aside, don't direct on drugs. Directing is, it's a responsible, highly technical, not harmless pastime. You're in control of a lot of things that can injure people. In the same breath that I'm like, it's good to have a good humor about it. That's the easy take. I do want to caveat that like, Professionals need to be professional. This movie shouldn't be uh, really enjoyed in the way of saying like, oh, they're just all having fun. Yeah, that is true. Uh, But also don't direct movies high, people. And I think Stephen King today, I'd have if I had to bet, which I guess I'm I don't have to, but I am. (laughs) Stephen King today would also agree that like there's something abstractly funny about you know, that guy threw a no-hitter on LSD. This guy directed a movie on cocaine. It's right. a hell of a drug. But I think he would say, oh, no, it's not that funny. It was legit irresponsible and not a thing. Yeah. So that's um, our PSA segment, which I didn't know yeah. we were going to do. So let's get out of Skeleton Crew. How about? Oh, actually, I do mm. want to mention one more name. Oh, which wait. Is, uh, me too. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you stopped us. Go ahead. Is it Dino De Laurentiis? No, but I'm glad you brought that up. Because it's just going to come out later because uh, the reason you might know that name is that uh, he also was a big supporter of Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead franchise. And as a producer, kind of put them in each other's path. Uh, George Romero apparently was on set for a lot of this movie. And uh, he denies that he... He denies that he like helped direct this because who would want their name on the stinker? But uh, he, Stephen King, does say it was like he was always on set, probably because they were doing cocaine together. And then he was like, uh, "Yeah, I'd ask him directing questions." Um, so he was there as well. Um, then I'd so tell him strange. why I have better directing ideas because of my unlimited confidence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, no. So you want to know what? Yeah. What, what was the one that you were going with? It's not a name, sir. It's, it's a four letter phrase bifurcated by lightning itself. ACDC, motherfucker. ACDC. Wow! We're gonna wow. rock. Um, yeah. Apparently going, uh, asked by Stephen King himself, right? Reached out to him. Yes. He's that big. Cause Stephen King notably writes to... ACDC almost exclusively. And I believe there was also an association between ACDC and his like cocaine times. Um, So he, you know, this was his first and it turns out only directorial swing. So he decided to get his favorite band to score the movie. And I got to say, it's a terrible discordant choice that totally ruins. It's super bad. They're super. It makes it. It's like, is this a fun adventure? Because that's what ACD sounds like. ACDC sounds like rock and party time. I'm wearing my schoolboy short shorts on stage and we're fucking loving it and banging our heads around. 
Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be a horror movie. I don't understand what's going on. Yeah, it's like, yeah. fuck yeah, let's party. Mm-hmm. When there's sequences where it's like a boy riding a bike in a neighborhood and, and he realizes that everyone's gone or dead. Gruesome remains of dead bodies. And it's like, and it's like yeah, the robots are alive. Da, 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 da. It's uh, uh, it's. It's wonderful it's totally and ridiculous. Yeah, so weird. Which is not the only time that this pr- movie makes that mistake. It's true. So let's start by talking tone as we shift into it. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float yeah, too. Yeah, you got anything? Uh, about tone? Yeah, the discordant tone, I think, is the whole yeah. issue. The movie never knows if it's... Look, horror comedies great genre check out our Mm -hmm. movie kill me now full movie small beans search that on youtube and smoke it um we love horror comedy and i don't know i think we've talked about it enough that we don't have to go into why they're such a great pairing but it's a it's a natural pairing of genre tropes horror and comedy is and uh yet you have to understand (laughs) what it is about the human experience of fear or tension being broken by an awkward moment of levity that punches both up like peanut butter and chocolate. Uh, Stephen King, at least the Stephen King who directed this on cocaine does not understand that the movie just sometimes is funny in the same shot or, or moment that it's also being gory and it's not gory. Funny. The gore is played for, like the guy getting hit in the nuts with the soda can. So so a vending machine turns mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. And a guy gets hit in the nuts with a soda can with a bunch of kids watching him. And they go, oh! And you're like, okay. Look, regardless of how bad that is as a joke, that mm-hmm. is a joke, right? Or that would read as a joke. He falls to the ground on his knees and it hits him in the gut with a soda can. And you're like, Okay, this is the joke of the thing beating him up with sodas. I get it. But then one flies into his head and gruesomely crushes his skull, which the kids witness and all run. And that's right. I'm just gotta, you gotta believe me on this without watching it necessarily. That the editing and stuff and the way it's handled does not support a smooth shift between we're laughing, we're laughing, oh no, we're scared. It's like both at once. It's like, Ha ha ha. Whoa. Horror, but but also funny. But let's rock out a little bit. Emilio Estevez is handsome. Maybe he'll kiss this girl. Ooh, that's That's gory. It's like a guy on cocaine talking to you at a party and he can't. He the ideas that he's connecting that he thinks are connected. You can't see the connections. He's just pinging around. Yep. Looking at stuff, uh, telling you stuff, doing little riffs. King makes two mistakes uh, in when you're trying to develop tone. It's pretty, it's pretty cut and dry. But I can see how people can get it confused. Um, he does two things incorrectly. One is that he doesn't allow for time to assess what type of scene or what time of type of moment you're in. Uh, he just blitzkrieg goes through the lines um, and. Like, for example, in Shaun of the Dead, a horror comedy, you the comedy is omnipresent. And I mean that in the sense of it's always there. It's looming. It can happen at any time. As the audience, you never have the feeling like the expectation is that the comedy will come out of nowhere or suddenly it will be funny because it's always generally funny and sometimes hilarious. Uh, that's why the tone is consistent. So that's the other thing he doesn't understand is this is a straight up teledrama, like you said, with random jokes and large performances just peppered in at the whim of, well, who knows? And I'm so I, as the audience member, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to laugh at. Right. To continue the sweets metaphor, uh, when you combine genre tropes, we've learned that the most effective way is to do so sequence by sequence. And a sequence is considered a a set of scenes that contain one thought or action or one beat of an art. Um, So you might 
have a, a horror sequence that really, really ground is grounded and plays the stakes for reality and is horrifying. And it ends on a huge joke in the opposite direction. And that gets a huge laugh because we're out of the sequence at that point And we are reminded, oh, that's right. This movie can be funny too. Uh, that's your chocolate and peanut butter experience. And it's, it's organized like a Reese's cup. Uh, this movie is like, a slurry of chocolate flakes and peanut butter being shotgun blasted at your face while ACDC plays. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like comparing it to, (laughs) it it compares very interestingly to me to Mars attacks. Did that come up for you at all watching this? Uh, That's interesting because Uh, that's a movie with a sardonically weird. Many people found it off putting. It was a flop. Um, but it's become a cult classic. It has a very specific tone, just the most specific tone. And it's mm-hmm. it's weird and it's funny and scary and it combines gore and humor. But that consistency is there enough that you feel that Mars Attacks is of a piece. It doesn't feel chunky. And this movie feels chunky in a bad way, which is funny because one of the recurring pieces of score, I think, is it sounds, I swear to God, this is what it sounds like. The guy from ACDC, Angus, literally going, chunk, chunk 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 uh Mm -hmm. and that's like the horror shit is going down right now theme very glaring it's like some cyberpunk combat music um and uh yeah i just can't get over how schizophrenic and inconsistent uh the tone of the movie is especially when two-thirds of the way through suddenly you're like oh emilio estevez and this lady are gonna fall in love okay like in that basement scene where they tremors it and that guy has yeah. all those guns for no reason. Why so yeah. many, so many guns? An impossible Inexplicable choices. Guns. Inexplicable. Uh, yeah. And then there, there's a, the, when mm-hmm. they consummate their love, uh, the post-coital scene. I like that Amelia. they got down fast without a lot of they got dicking down fast, around. That's fine. Yeah. Did you know, did you watch that scene and he touches her forehead several times and licks his finger? Yeah, she's salty. Like her her brain thoughts are tasty, man. Salt? Yeah, he's tasting her thoughts. I don't know what this is supposed to convey. I'm just randomly in this podcast. I'm going to blurt out random circumstances sure. in this movie oh. and point out like how inexplicable these directorial choices are. Yeah, so it's like, and the other, yeah, I bring up Mars Attacks because it's like, right, a group of strangers thrust together by a world-altering cataclysm, and we follow yeah. all of them at once, and yet in this movie we follow no one it's like a bundle of string that doesn't coalesce into a knot none of the arcs Mm -hmm. really converge other than the fact that they are some of them are alive at the end like the uh the baseball the little league kids dad dies and you think it's gonna matter but it's never brought Mm -hmm. up again uh they fall in love and you think it's gonna matter it's never really brought up again so many things are just brought up and and left why is Giancarlo Esposito in the movie I don't even know who he represents other than just a guy to die what is that um, part right we cut away to a guy who dies as a result of a haunted arcade he's hanging machine out with his buddy he's a part of like uh that crew um but it's but like yeah, if just in crash it's like if in crash they cut to someone alone who's like, I'm also racist. And it cuts back yeah. and you're like, they're all connected. And you're like, yeah, but he wasn't really connected plot wise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I blo- mean, and you're the describing blocking, most dude. Paul Thomas Anderson movies right now. <laughs> there is there is a moment where Emilio Estevez stares down a Mack truck physically. Physically. Like his then, impulse like is to chest. chest bump it and go. Yeah. You think I'm going to back down? What do you want from us? Dude, it, <laughs> and it's not explained. Why doesn't it kill him? This is a problem with a lot of horror monsters, but even more so in Maximum Overdrive, mm-hmm. the trucks prove that they can demolish the whole diner at the end. Why didn't they yeah. do that initially? Why didn't they do that before? Because uh, they guess they needed him. Um, Michael, uh, <laughs> you know, when You're the love interests angry. first meet? You what? Uh, you remember, remember there's a, when the love interests first meet, mm-hmm. uh, there's uh the truck, uh, there's a truck nearby and, uh, the truck adjusts its driver's side mirror to observe them better. Like it's oh, listening in. Dude, to observe right? them falling in love and, and the score 
is not sinister. This is what I mean. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up because that shot is actually the clearest, most perfect example of Stephen King not understanding what he's doing tonally. Because if you have a shot where the monster's a car and its eye is the mirror and its mirror is turning to look at our hero, what music would you play? Sinister music, right? Even if the hero from their own vantage is falling in love in that moment, and in their head, they're hearing romance music. We, the audience, should be hearing sinister music because we are right. The, we're following the drama right now, based on the shot you've selected, of the evil car. The car is evil. Instead, he plays romance score. So the impression, it's like you're encoding wrong meaning. It's literally like you're translating film incorrectly. Now the meaning of the sequence becomes... This car is like, ooh la la, what's all this then? Looking at humans canoodling and the car's like turned on is the impression you get. Mm-hmm. To the point that when they cut to the wide, the car turns on like one headlight more than the other as if it's winking. Like, get a load of this. These humans are falling in love. And you're like, what is the point of view of this truck now? It's like if Optimus Prime was like, hubba hubba. Check out these, these yeah, people. Check out these. Who's it for? Who's uh, it for? Who are we following, Inexplicable Steven? choices. Uh, would it surprise you um, that he does not obey the 180 line in any sequence, any action sequence in this movie? Like not a uh, one. <laughs> not a single one. There's always a break, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Uh, he also, uh, another director nod, uh, Stephen King seems to hate establishing shots. Now, the power of establishing shots or why they're used is it's usually designed to give the audience a sense of geography, specifically between people in the scene, but also people and things like cars. Uh, so it's a usual, usually a very helpful to kind of give you a wide of like what the layout of, I don't know, the cars that are coming at you or like where the dry diner is in relation to an explosion. Now you don't have to always use a stout, like the, the wide shots, I guess uh, they're not all establishing shots are wide. Not all uh, wide shots are establishing shots, but um, the point of them <clears throat> is usually to give you a sense at some point in the movie. You don't have to cut to it every time an action happens just so it's like okay just so we're clear uh that actor took a step forward and now he's closer to that other person that's obviously not what they're for we once you got it in your head of okay he's over to the left and she's over to the right and now they're coming together and oh now the car's to the left like once we start doing it we can do it in our head that's the beauty of movies he doesn't seem to care about any of that conversation uh stephen king seems to just not use establishing shots or set up geography, which means that he'll cut, have like a hard cut to um, just a new space. And you don't even know, especially because they look all similar because it's just like outside mm-hmm. and inside. It's like all basically one big location with only a few set pieces, only a few stagings. Um, it makes the geography very hard to understand. And it's actually very Christopher Nolan-like, in my opinion, because Christopher Nolan does the same thing where he jumps from one scene to a uh, shot, reverse shot of two actors talking in another scene and then jumps fa- uh, like on onward and onward and onward. But I don't think that uh, Stephen King thought that his audience would have the like lexicon or film grammar to understand that. I think he just doesn't understand that that's necessary when you create a film. Um, so... There's that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can I switch gears? Sure. If you will, as it mm-hmm. were, uh, <laughs> to shitting on the writing itself now? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, because that's sort of my purview. And I am greatly offended and incensed by the writing in this. Not only the tonal. Uh, mismatches like a sequence in the beginning where a bridge opens itself and in some actually impressive effects, mostly stunt work, 
cars and people start to slide off into the water and it really does kind of feel brutal, we suddenly cut to a fat hippie in a van going, wow, far out, man. Like that, I mean, that's just another tonal mismatch. But again, it's the fault of the writer, who again is Stephen King. And and so those aside, those aside, he also indulges tremendously in what I need to come up with a phrase for Kingisms is too banal, but King loves this. Like, um, the one I always go back to, I mean, my favorite lately is if you want to butt, go out to the junkyard, but bite my mm-hmm. bag, uh, and a real fuckery and fuckeroo from Dreamcatcher are big offenders that stick in my mind. This movie is riddled with those. Uh, I don't give a June bug. Oh, um, did that knife? Holy crow. Holy crow. That knife go rabid, you sweet thing. Oh, also want to point out the moment you mentioned early on where they first meet uh, is also when the lovebirds arrive, the newlyweds. And uh, right around there, the, uh, the love interest, I forget everyone's name. Uh, yeah, I think her name's Brett. Care to learn. Brett is getting hit on by the creepy Bible salesman and she says, eat my shorts. Mm-hmm. I've got to believe that's a Yardley Smith slash Simpsons nod. No, maybe. I don't know. I think yes. I don't Yardley know. plays Lisa, but still. Um, Steve, do the years line up? Oh, 86. That might even be think... prior to Simpsons. You're right. That's prior to Simpsons. I think. I think they're 89. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. So I'm full of shit on that. But anyway, back to shitting on Stephen King's writing, the greatest writer to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, mm-hmm. He also named the big evil truck that's essentially our main antagonist. It has a sign on its side that says, Happy Toys, here comes another load of joy. And that's just so semeny, I have to believe. <laughs> Yeah, that it's, it's supposed just, to be a cum joke, and I don't understand yeah, it rolls why right there's off a the tongue, dude. Cum joke on your truck in your horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else. I'm just scrolling Cocaine. through, looking for all the things. Oh, here's a great one. You want to rock and roll with me, puss bag? Hell yeah, hell yeah. Potentially the hackiest midpoint I've ever seen in a film. Midpoint uh, often used to, because uh, okay, so follow me here. This is a bit of a digression mm-hmm. into story. Uh, uh, story diagrams, but Abe, I know you know this. I'm talking to a listener. I find this fascinating or interesting. You know, things like the golden ratio that occur in nature and we just, or like the standard rate of human breathing that sort of comports to a rough average of your heartbeat cycle. And there's thing, and that sort of comports to like the beat of music we like. And there's these, and that's cross-cultural in, in the history of various human, you know, enterprises. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that. And I think one of those things like that, that's so great is that we love the three act structure. We love the number three. Generally, we're comfortable with things that come in threes and we like to build mythology around that number of things. And, uh, we're also comfortable in things that come in twos. Cause we work a lot. Our brain works in opposites. We get one, two, and we get this one in contrast with that one. So if you follow me, the lowest common factorial of two and three is six. And what I mean by that is most quote unquote traditionally made films, you can skin two ways structurally into one, two, three beats, act one, act two, act three, and in half. In half should also have meaning. You should like the first part should mean something as opposed to the second part or in relation to the second part. And it's a good trick because it gives you a beat of meaning or it gives you a beat of stakes changes or whatever game you're playing. Your changes come at a steady clip and we found that humans just like this kind of story. It's it's the basic shape mm-hmm. of the story people like. The point being, the exact midpoint of your movie is not to be taken lightly. It actually matters. And at the midpoint of Maximum Overdrive, it's Brett saying, wow, I guess every machine's really gone into Maximum Overdrive. It's like... Hell yeah. It's by definition the hackiest possible use of the most important point, arguably other than the Act 3 break or whatever, or the inciting Mm. incident. Mm. Uh, It's as bad as writing can get. And so it's just continually boggling, mind boggling to me that this is Stephen King sitting down and trying his best to do this. There's a line mm-hmm. that the waitress says when she walks out uh, and before she gets shot. Someone had to bring and, this up. And she goes, we made you 
don't you understand? <laughs> Try to, the to convince the machines. What an inexplicable belief. Hey, cars are acting with some kind of murder will. Let's tell them that there are slaves and they'll understand. <laughs> like, I don't even know what the motivation of her character is. Like, why is she, why is this the hill that she's going to die on? Literally, she gets shot right. in the chest. Trying to like, convince I, them, obey us, <laughs> obey, obey us. us. We made you. I don't understand. Also, I don't understand. Yeah, super weird stuff like that all throughout. Like, I mean, I have to believe this is just a result of not shooting the sequence correctly and not having the footage you need. But right about that time, their goal becomes to rescue the Bible salesman because he got hit and thrown into a ditch. And mm -hmm. then they get to him and immediately abandon him, but you don't see him die. But off camera, someone just screams, he's dead, he's dead. Leave him, he's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, he wasn't a second ago. What happened? Mm -hmm. Like he died on a cut off frame. Same thing happens to the waitress when she dies. There's no scene. There's no scene in this movie where when someone dies, anyone thinks about or discusses the impact of the many deaths of the main group. Like, so the, when the waitress dies, it's immediately back to business. Estevez laughs in the next scene and says, well, cause it's the Morse code scene. Let's get these cars some fuel. And it, there's no uh, acknowledgement of mourning of like someone just horribly died right. just now because the actors, I don't think we're told this is when this you're now at this part in the story. Nor <laughs> is just there like, God. We got some scenes to shoot today. And Come then, on over. And then the movie pretends this is also I'm like, what are we doing here? The movie's next challenge or like the sequence that it throws at you to raise the stakes is they mm -hmm. pretend that filling trucks up with gas is really physically taxing. You know what I mean? Yeah. The movie they pretends get. like our hero, Emilio Estevez, someone has to tap in and be like, it's okay, man, I'll take over. And he says, they just don't understand. They don't understand how a man gets tired, how a man can only do so much. And he's like, mm -hmm. why would they understand? And he like, it's this sad, somber moment about how, how now they're at the end of their rope because they're filling the trucks with gas. That's not hard to do. What are you talking about? You're just standing in the gas station filling trucks with gas. What is going well on? So some people are going to probably come at us and say like, yeah, you're missing the point. Uh, this is a comedy, right? This is something that sometimes people m mention. Uh, There's indications that I he may have... you're missing the point. Well... <laughs> you're missing the point that he didn't accomplish it in any way to conceivably uh, believe that that is the point of it. Because if you itemize and, like, if you make each cinematic moment in this movie every conversation every you know gesture every, they're all so far removed from each other that it's outside of the realm of understanding it's not a comedy because it doesn't even obey comedy rules for I example know. i don't know if you've seen it um an evening with beverly lufflin have you seen that yeah 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 it's on netflix I can't say I recommend it. I would only recommend it to certain people because it's so specific. But, but that is intentional. Yeah. Isn't it I interesting think. how weird and anti-comedy it can be while still giving you what we like to call, Abe and I amongst ourselves like that, in good hands feeling of the mm -hmm. basic film grammar and tropes are maintained just enough so that you understand the intention of this team was to make a funny movie. There's very few jokes. It's paced differently than most comedies. They're experimenting with the form, but I understand it's a comedy. So when the laugh moments come, if I find it funny, I do laugh in this. I feel like the movie's asking me to feel so many different ways at once that I've come away unclear with. I would not consider it in any quadrant firmly. It's only a comedy through failure. And the moments where it's trying to be comedic, for example, the cold open, when an ATM tells Stephen King over and over, you are an asshole, you are an asshole. Um, that's arguably a comic maneuver. And mm -hmm. then... The very, that's very Mars Attacks. You're yes, right about that. That's very Mars Attacks. But there is there's a recency bias that humans have 
Like, what have you explained to me lately? If you do not show consistency or at least things that rhyme, the ideas that rhyme or things that you understand, this is what the movie's about. A movie cannot encompass all of existence or it would have to take as long as life, right? And then some, because it could, that could only explicate one life. Um, so a movie is choosing and not choosing elements. And if there is no discernible pattern to what you're choosing, then you'll always it's end up madness. with the same result, which is a mosaic of random bullshit, which you can make. You're welcome to make that, but it doesn't say anything beyond, here's a bunch of stuff I cut together at random. So if so, you have to have patterns. You have it's to just have- ramblings. Yeah. To not be rambling, there has to be a pattern. And when the pattern is not established when the within the first 10 minutes, people start to get uneasy. And when there's no pattern, even a pattern of lack of pattern, after 20, mm. 25 minutes, even if beats come around later that try to save the ship and explain what the movie is trying to be, it's really hard to win that respect back. And you'll get that in novels, too, where you're like... Mm. 50 minutes in, I decided this person was a bad writer, so they're kind of never going to win me back. They're never going to win me over because you had your chance. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, I felt at the beginning, there's a line in the beginning of the movie that made me feel like I was, that's how I summarized how I felt like I, when I was watching this movie, which is that the waitress is trying to get the TV to work. She uh, And she has a line that still doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm just like, uh, a pop culture blindness on this phrase, but she's talking about how the TV can't work. And she says, this thing was working just fine. And now I can't get peak Turkey on. Never heard that in my life. A lot of people on our B movie frame rate came swooped in to say that they had heard the old wives tale that bees can't fly, but mm. please write in again. Peak What's Turkey. Peak turkey? It's yeah. peak Turkey. I mean, Anyone I can suss out that up. she's trying to say this thing isn't working, but I just have never heard that phrase. So it's bizarre. Uh, yeah. And it's like, I don't know. So when you're throwing us that, you're also, there's like, and you're also throwing us weird shots of like, just like how you set up a character, like the Bible salesman's eating at the diner before this all kind of falls apart. And being and a sex a pest sandwich. to Brett for some reason, what that doesn't resolve. Right. Uh, the details included in every moment in this particular moment, he has a club sandwich and a 32 ounce of high life. Again, in inexplicable choices, <laughs> the ramblings of madmen. Uh, yeah, that guy is okay. So speaking of inexplicable, I actually have, I think I'm out of lines. Oh, the only other line I wanted to call out is especially bad is when Emilio intuits what's going on, I guess, and explains it to the audience point blank. And he says, don't you see it's aliens sending a signal. They want to take over earth, but they don't want to risk troops. So they're sending a signal to make the machines go crazy. It's quote aliens using our own machines to sweep us up like a broom, like a broom. And all I could think of was there's a scene in an office episode where, uh, what's his name? Gabe compares himself to a toilet. And Dwight says, you know, you could have said incinerator or eraser, but you went with toilet. Like broom is the weakest possible analogy for a force that's going to destroy, you know, like you say, like yeah. a fire, like, uh, yeah, there's so many watching the countryside. Yeah. Use like better words that are more evocative. They're going to purge us like radiation. Like it's just to say yeah. the alien invasion sweeping Squash across us, us like, like a broom. A Sounds kind of pleasant. Mm. I don't know. It just struck me as really weak writing. Like a broom. It's enough nitpicking. But I did want to mm. ask you an actual physical question. Like did... Did you understand in the sequence where they're, which ultimately builds to, I guess, how they escape the tunnel, they go back and mm -hmm. forth through the sewer tunnel several times for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Could you track which side of the, am I, am I mistracking it or were there points at which the kid was on the wrong side of the, depicted as on the wrong side of the tunnel, like different than we thought he was before. And yeah. Am I correct in saying that sometimes the grate that blocks the tunnel is there and sometimes it magically isn't? And then at the yeah, end it is again and they cut it open. That I that part is a, le a little easier because they, he's cutting 
He's cutting. Are there it, two but tunnels? It, all, it clearly folds, so it's not like it's once it's it's like a mesh that has springiness to it. It's you know that's why even though it's cut, it doesn't look cut. That's something that you could, tr- if you were a director, you would try to make clearer because you work in a visual medium. So there's if, no clarity of geography in this movie. Yeah, uh, he actually does obey the like screen direction in these sequences surprisingly, but I think that. The reason that you and I both had a weird reaction to it is that it is very... Stephen King doesn't understand continuation of motion as well. So he doesn't understand that there's kind of a setup or a premise that a shot will offer. And then there's a payoff or a conclusion to its, like, its offer. Like, usually it's like something happened, therefore... be because or however you want to you know talk about the writing of that uh but to show you what i mean when he cuts like um uh, to a shot where it's a started action you can take something simple like just someone pushing someone or something like that he if you cut away during it that action ought to be around the same visual area of frame to continue the action so that we know okay that is this that's what started it and that's the result you know like um so the action is completed between the two shots martial arts films use this all the time and break this by doubling action for the emphasis of like the impact of punches or falls but here often Stephen King doesn't obey this like I guess editorial precedent I think it comes down to the fact that he is a writer because I've dealt with writers who kind of think about this directing movies like this way. I think they fall in love with the concept of the shot or the sequence. And they say, this is why it's in the movie. And that's great. And they could be totally right about that. But they're not caring about the audience's reception of that necessary information in the correct order to be with like the threat of the movie. Or like you said, Michael, to feel like you're in good hands. A clear indication is that many lines happen off screen as well. Which you can do for reasons, of course, uh, or like lots of movies have off camera lines for specific purpose, but he doesn't. Sometimes what he'll have happen is that he'll have them read lines off screen. uh, Like when the couple drives through the car circle, like they're doing the trucks are doing their circle around the truck stop uh, and they try to break through it because there's like a lull in between the trucks the bride is just jabbering the whole time off screen. The man with the bazooka, the Bible salesman, is talking uh, and he's off screen. Even Estevez adds like a quip to all these fast cuts of just cars moving in space. So it's all over each other and without natural pauses or anything. It's just a Rolodex of lines that he wanted in the movie. But we don't connect with any of it. When everyone talks, you can't focus on one moment or person. So we lose all of them. I think to him, because maybe he's a writer or I don't know, maybe cocaine, who who can say it's more important that the line is said, not that it's a part of the circumstances that the film portrays as real situations between real people where they said those lines and felt those things and said it in that way. Performance and acting is secondary to the implications of the characters being real because Stephen King wrote them. Like, I think that's the problem here. He's throwing it in there because he's like, I like that. It should be in the movie. Well, that's different from saying this is how the movie works. It makes everyone feel like they're just chess pieces. They're not people. They're just like functionally like, what do you do? And then you say this line and then you walk over there. Okay, but why am I doing any of these things? It's not really matter. The sound editing is so clumsy that a number of subtitles on this movie say in brackets, indistinct. Like too many people are talking at once. I, the person writing the subtitles for the hearing impaired, I have no idea what they said. Figure it out. It's a goddamn mess. It's a goddamn mess. Yeah. Um, I have a few more like things to point out as far as it being a mess, but then I'm out. Should I just, Mm -hmm. should I rattle them off? This whole movie needs a contrast punch. Let's just talk color correction real quick. I think you'll agree. It's, (laughs) it's way washed out more than it needs to be for 1986. Um, Speaking of clumsy sound design, they try to take the the Breaking Bad season five turret car and mix in the sound of a dog growling to represent that it's a monster, and mm-hmm. they do it. That's good. 
inc- like it's a good impulse for the sound designer, but they literally they do the one thing that's that you that's weird. Like why you're weird? Why would you do it that way? Where it it's shoots weird. and shoots, and then the sound of the shooting dies down, and then over silence, there's just and you're like that you mix it in. You're supposed to mix it in with the shooting sound. Weird. It, yeah, it's just it's just weird wild stuff. Um <laughs> blocking, another blocking note. Let's blocking. Let's say you're in the let's say what you're making fuck? aliens and yeah. and the alien, the xenomorphs have made a deal with the humans, a wary truce where they're like we need food if you feed us this bowl of fruit we'll let you live for now. And the humans have agreed and they're walking over and they're methodically feeding fruit, very tense to the xenomorphs, right? Would you blocking that scene have the tired humans lean on the xenomorphs for support? And you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. yeah. They, when they're pumping the gas, they lean all over the trucks. One guy sits on the bed of a truck that a sequence ago tried to kill him. That is yeah. the monster. Why are you blocking the scene so that people are leaning on the monster? That's the I monster. Know, like, that's the thing is I don't know what, like, how to structure, like, my analysis of how bad this, like, the mistakes this movie I'm makes. just yelling at it. Old I'm man yells at, at cloud. Like, I'm in a candy <laughs> store and I'm just pointing out things uh, that I want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, it's that I don't want. You know, like, when... You, if when you're watching this and if you mm. haven't seen it before when you watch this and the people escape uh what do you think the climax like what is the movie set up uh so far at that point oh green what goblin do you think truck the climax would be do you think it would yeah. be that the first truck that they saw follows them all the way to a marina and then Emilio Estevez uses a bazooka to explode it because you'd be right in a <laughs> series of happen. super flat shots that don't like it's so underwhelming it takes you you have to clock it in reverse you go oh i guess that means oh stephen king thought the green goblin truck was the final boss i i guess that was the climax it's <laughs> like it. oh, yeah. you, just, you realize it a little later you're like oh okay i guess, I guess that was the climax i guess Woo! That was it. and then in a part i do love they all sail <laughs> off hooting and cheering in a sailboat with a giant rainbow flag on it, exactly like the uh, gay pride boat from Arrested Development. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> really reminiscent. Uh, really and, reminiscent. And then, as we said, it ends with text on screen, always a sign of not giving a shit about your movie, ultimately, uh, yeah. that says, uh, everything Abe said, or I'm going to quote it again, because this is my final point. It says, two days later, A large UFO was destroyed in space by a Russian weather satellite, which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and class four nuclear missiles. Approximately six days later, the, so eight, okay, two days later and then six days later, which is clumsy writing. I digress. Approximately six days later, the earth passed beyond the tail of Rhea M exactly as predicted and the survivors continued to be survivors. I just want to point out, and I know this is nitpicking, which is why it's my last point. Nowhere in that does it technically say if the machines stopped being evil or crazy. It's implied, but it literally fails to address the only thing the movie was about. Right. Also, it's unclear whether or not it was aliens or it was the That's the first mention of a UFO that is from the movie's point of view. Everything else has been Emilio Estevez saying, I guess it's maybe aliens. I don't know. Yeah, something made him go crazy. I cannot hammer home enough how many machines they encounter that just stay normal. Yeah. And the sheer inconsistency. Mm -hmm. So there is an RC car that kills a dog by jamming itself down the dog's throat. First of all, I didn't know an RC car could generate enough torque in the axle to drive Mm. itself forcefully down a dog's throat throat. and choke it to death, uh, leaving a blood like all over its mouth. That's a strong RC car, but Mm. an RC, something as a machine as simple as an RC car is evil enough to choke a golden retriever and a bike will trip a kid, but then whole cars, Like, even after all the trucks are evil, people arrive in their own cars. Like, the newlyweds show up in a car. What happened to their car? 
Uh, why isn't their car I don't uh, revolting? <laughs> we got to get out of here, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. I just want to there's a good uh there's a good uh, film review from the Washington Post. Please, by uh, all means. Quoted, says that the film is, quote, is like sitting alongside a three-year-old as he skids his Tonka trucks across the living room floor and says, we, except on somewhat grander scale, and added that as a director, Stephen King, quote, proves that he hasn't got an ounce of visual style, the vaguest idea of how to direct actors, or the sense that God gave gave a grapefruit. Um, yeah, it's real weird. <laughs> Everything's real weird. Why does it have to be this weird? The budget was $9 million. The box office was $7.5 million. A noble experiment. It only cost us a mil and a half. Yeah. Now we get to and talk now about maximum overdrive. And now we know. There's quotes for some reason, uh, the phone booth and the truck stop. There's quotes to uh, Spielberg's um, duel. Sure. Uh, or North by Northwest, even. Why wouldn't there be? I mean, uh, mixing the sound of an animal growl into uh, military equipment is very Saving Private Ryan as well. So Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Our well, very first frame rate. Years. But yeah, right. it's a... Uh, it is maybe a, he got, maybe I like to think Spielberg got that trick from Maximum Overdrive. From my, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if you just clean that up a little, that would be a good maneuver. It's just Spielberg rewatching Lawrence of Arabia for the 900th time. Mm. And he's just looks over at Maximum Overdrive and goes, Steven, the real Steven is talking. The king. <laughs> I think that's all I got for yeah, it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Which takes us to the stand. I think this one's pretty easy, right? It's pretty easy, but did you? The stand is where we rank every movie we've covered thus far in order, and it's an ongoing uh listicle, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Did you do what we said we'd do last time and break your ties? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, so no more ties. I only had the one tie. We're retconning. No more tie. I, I ruined it because I was tying everything, and that was going to keep happening unless we broke And the then tie. I decided I'd tie everything if you're tying everything. So and fuck that. Here Mutually assured No finale. more ties. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yep, this yep, is yep. episode 11. So and this will be- from number one from down, From number right? one down, baby. This is our top 11. Stephen right. King adaptations. One. Number one, The Shining. Shining. Number two, Doctor Sleep. Mm-hmm. Number three, number three, Stand by Me. Misery. Number four, Misery. Okay, yep. so, so now our those. that little sequence yep. is complete. That it's little just, it's just the, It really is just three, four, five. I think it's just that I like Doctor Sleep a whole lot. I think um, there might also be a dead zone thinner thing. Yeah. Uh, Number five. Oh, yeah. Christine. Number mm. six. The Mist. Christine. Oh, we swapped again. We swapped again. I know. Yep. Uh, I think I think I might be wrong. But it might be recency bias because I've seen The Mist five or six times. And uh, I remember the first time the ending really demolished me. But I think the rest is kind of haphazard and i found christine surprisingly better than i thought it would be yeah but in the end if i'm being objective i might have fucked that up those might i think your switch is correct i think mist is better than christine i'm all right on your good word i'm switching those okay well Well, let's move on one two three four five six number seven we're on number seven thinner 1990s it oh uh-huh. Oh, that's our other big difference. You like it more than me. Number yeah. eight, Dead Zone. Dead Zone. Dead um, Zone loves eight. Yeah. Number nine. And then this is this is where you put it, right? And it's where you this put is thinner. What, this is what number, yeah. Number nine is thinner for me. Yep. It. Stephen King's it. So right. the, the real moment. question of this episode, our Does bottom rank over Dreamcatcher. That's right. Number 10. 
Dreamcatcher. Dream <laughs> yeah, it's the worst movie. This Maximum is Overdrive. Movie. Will Maximum any... Overdrive. I don't think there's any way that this is not the worst movie from hey, here on in. More like Minimum Underdrive, am I right? Like, what, I'm... What are the yeah. odds... Or I just... There is something poetic about... The author himself making the worst yes. adaptation of his work that ever existed, especially when he's been job. adapted hundreds of times. Yeah, he's—it's not his job. He's never spent time on sets. He—he he, he doesn't study films. He studies stories and books. You know, like yeah. that's how he got good at what he's good at. It's a different skill set entirely. Uh. The fact that they're artistic is the closest, the what makes them similar, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, writing feeds itself to many different formats, including film, but like... And man. plenty of the elements are serviceable. It's not like the right. concepts could not be made into a pleasing, engaging film. No, it could be an action movie. It. it could be a comedy. It could be a horror. He chose to do some amalgam of all three that doesn't work on any level. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure that uh, on cocaine wasn't. This is the. This is not the only movie on our list, much less Stephen King's career, where the movie sets most likely had cocaine on set. Oh, for sure. That doesn't explain a hundred percent of these problems. Mm-hmm. I think it just explains how little Stephen King cares about the actual medium of film adaptations which explains so much to me actually because if he doesn't care it's why he's so flippant with like yeah you want to want to make mine into a movie and make some money yeah sure because he really truly believes as he should that uh the best way to read his work is the medium he works in which is he writes novels and he says right and he said that yeah and then the people who make a movie a movie is different than a book do what you need to do like he doesn't meddle that much yeah yeah and I think he's not wrong about that. He's not wrong. That's the right healthy way to be about it. It's just we make a lot of Stephen King adaptations. We have a podcast on it. And it's just like, wow, man, you really don't care about movies, mm-hmm. do you? Uh, you probably would have a, issued it with that, but I, I don't know. I think. Uh, well, when think we do the final episode the and have him on, we'll hash it out. Yeah, I can't wait. That'll be fun. I have nothing else other than do you nope. want to try to call our shot? Yeah, uh, let's for call next our time? shot yet again. I think this will be the first. I think this will be the time it sticks. I don't because think there's anything keeping us from it. There's we no way this weird. Yeah, we're we're gonna <laughs> talk. Avoid. We're talking Green Mile next, and there's no way. Yeah, yeah. How I can we not access Green Mile? We're gonna be able to. So we can find Green Mile. We can. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Unless something comes up in the news that makes it in poor taste to discuss Green Mile or that something. could happen. Like they know? make the death penalty mandatory for everyone and we don't feel like talking about it. Um, we'll be discussing Green like, Mile. God damn. There's so many things that could happen that would totally do that. And I don't want to think about them. Oh, like um, you like there's a giant that? terrorist attack and it's called the Green Mile bombing. It's called the Green and Mile we're like, we don't terrorist really wanna, attack. Yeah. <laughs> Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Stay safe. Stay safe out there. Mask up. We love you. This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.